0: We're continuing our sermon series in Ecclesiastes this week and two more Sundays before we move into that new sermon series. And and that's gonna be different for me because I am not one who... In fact, this will be the first topical sermon series I've done since I've been here. I always preach what's called expository sermons, preaching through uh, a book in the Bible. And and instead, we're going to address this issue, this topic of what it means to be the church. But uh, today, as we move into the 11th chapter of Ecclesiastes, sometimes we find ourselves wondering, wondering whether anything we do really matters. Now, I'm sure you've been there. We pray for a friend. But we question if our prayer ever gets answered. We give money to help the poor. But does it really change their lives? We share the gospel. But we wonder if anybody is really getting saved. You see, you never know or at least sometimes it feels that way. And so it's not uncommon to question are there any positive results for what we're doing I was there two weeks ago that first week we were gone from here as I sat on the beach and at one point I said to Jesse Do you think I'm really accomplishing anything? Do you think yeah. we're really doing any good at all? And at a deeper level, the, the question then becomes is life really worth living? I mean, that was the question that the preacher, whom we've identified as Solomon, that was the question that he raised as he began this discourse called Ecclesiastes. And after examining and experimenting and investigating life under the sun, life from an earthly, or what we might refer to as a a humanistic perspective, Solomon concluded, no, life is not worth living. That's why I shared with you several weeks ago that I really struggle with how to tell a person who does not believe in God, who thinks everything just happened by time and chance. I struggle with telling them why they should not be suicidal. I mean, the monotony of life Get up to go to work so you can come home and go to bed. So you can get up to go to work so you can come home and go to bed and get up. I mean, if you don't have any meaning beyond that. The absurdity or vanity of human wisdom. The futility of having wealth. You realize, don't you, that the highest percentage of people who commit suicide and who are in chronic despair are in the upper... Socioeconomic income levels and the certainty of death. I had somebody recently tell me that I, I didn't even know the guy. We were talking about wild and crazy things done in motor vehicles and on motorcycles and I shared some of the stupid things that I've done. And he said, why not? We're all going to die anyway. However, being wise, having that God-granted wisdom, Solomon reviewed his arguments, and this final time through, he brought God into the picture. And what a difference it made. He realized that life was not mon- monotonous, but it was filled with challenging situations from God. Each in its own time and each with its own purpose. And even though man's wisdom couldn't explain everything, Solomon concluded that it was better to follow God's wisdom than to practice man's folly. He found out that wealth could be enjoyed and employed to the glory of God. And regarding the certainty of death, there is no way to escape it. And the reality of death ought to motivate us to enjoy life now and make the most of the opportunities that God gives us. So what are we supposed to do? Well, what if we began by thinking through of some of the things that really bother us? Thinking seriously reading God's Word, meditating, and then being willing to step out of the rut. How many of you have seen the picture at some point that's at one of the borders of Alaska? That The picture says, choose your rut wisely, you'll be in it the next hundred and some odd miles. The roads are that bad that You get in that rut and you're going to be there. You're not going to get out of it. It It's an old sign from back in the wagon, horse-drawn wagon days. Step out of the rut. Try to think outside the box that you've placed yourself within. I listened. I couldn't the first week because you didn't stream it. But I listened to Cindy's message the second week. What a tremendous message that God gave to us through her. You know, there are words that have killed many churches. No question about it. We've never done it like that before. Well, and and where are you at? Derek Kidner, in his commentary, writes these words, if there are risks in everything, and we know there are, it's better to fail in watching out than in hugging one's resources to oneself. I like that. But here's the problem. Solomon, with all that he had, realized that he was living under limitations. Now, once again, I want to begin with a conclusion. I want to begin by reading verses 5 and 6, and then we'll go up and back and look at verses 1 to 4. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, So, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Do you see how, in conclusion, Solomon is stressing the fact that when we're honest with ourselves, We realize that God's ways are mysterious. And so the wise person works hard and shuns idleness. Why? Because God's works are not able to be known. That's what he says in verse 5. I mean, really. Biologically, we can understand cell division. But biologically, we can't understand why when those cells divide, all of a sudden some of those cells start deciding to be flesh tissue and some of them start deciding to start being bone tissue and some of them start deciding to be fingers. and they, It all started with one cell dividing and becoming two and, and on and on. And we certainly don't understand how that fleshly material comes to begin to have consciousness. It's beyond our understanding. It's mysterious. So what's left for us is to simply work and hope for the best. That's what he's saying in verse 6. So let's go back to see how he develops this. Verses 1-4 to Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Cast your bread upon the waters what's Solomon saying by this I think what he's saying is that life's an adventure which means that we should be living by faith and expecting the unexpected not allow fear to overcome our faith it should always be faith over fear we might do that Rich we might, we, we might do a little, the two of us go and, and, and get a buddy tattoo of faith over fear. One writer has described this first verse as the law of sowing. A paraphrase of verse 1 could easily read, Sow your seed, since the word bread is used uh, metonymically for seed. Sow your seed well upon the water, well-watered ground, and after many days you'll reap a harvest. Speaking spiritually, though, I think that what Solomon is saying is that we need to be sowing seeds of goodness, and in due season, we'll reap a reward. Now, here's why I say that. There are many verses in the Bible that speak of spiritual sowing and reaping. I've listed just a few of them for you. And if you go back, you write these down quickly and go back and read them. Here's what these verses teach us. That we reap only if we sow. We reap only if we sow. Kay was thankful for those who brought the veggies. Why? Because Kay admitted She didn't sow. She couldn't reap from her own garden because she hadn't sown a garden. And we we reap what we sow. I was so disappointed one year. When I was looking forward to cucumbers, and I had planted seeds that came out of a seed bag that said cucumbers and it had a picture of a cucumber on it and when the plant started growing being a city boy who didn't do gardens very often I didn't know that that vine that was growing wasn't cucumbers and I saw the blossoms and I got excited because I knew that each of those blossoms meant I was going to have a cucumber and lo and behold it was watermelon. <laughs> and I don't... Again, has anybody ever seen me eat watermelon at any of our dinners? I don't do watermelon. Once in a while, when I'm cutting it for my wife and daughter, I'll take a piece just so that I can warn them whether it's going to be bland or sweet. And that's the last of the watermelon I eat. I didn't want watermelon. So I didn't sow seeds for watermelon. Watermelon. I sowed seeds for cucumbers. Because I wanted cucumbers and I also wanted pickles. And I got some good cucumbers and I made some good pickles that year. I did. Not the other person. We only reap what we sow. And we reap according to how we sow. Remember the parable of the sower? sowed some seed, same seed, same sower. Some of it hit rocky ground. Some of it hit weedy ground. Some of it, you know, the only seed that grew was that that hit the good soil. It's according to how we sow. But the interesting thing about these verses is that the Bible teaches us that we we also reap more than we sow. And we have to be patient. Man, I got home Friday night, and I said, Come on, let's go check the garden and see if there's any tomatoes. I love fresh tomatoes. I, I get so disappointed when I go into a restaurant, and I want a salad, and there's a tomato on it, and as soon as I taste it, it's obvious it's one of those California, however ripe. I love fresh. Yesterday, I was here working, and the wife said, What do you want for supper? And she gave some options. You know what I had? I had a whole tomato sliced up and a little tuna to go with it. I'll just take a tomato and eat it like an apple. I love. And I get, it's a hard, it's hard for me to be patient with tomatoes. For two reasons. One, I love tomatoes. And secondly, I love fried green tomatoes. Oh man, my daughter makes some of the best fried green tomatoes I've ever eaten too. And what a blessing to wake up and hear her in the kitchen and get an idea that she's out there frying some green tomatoes. Now that I say that, I think we'll have some for lunch. (laughs) Because I gotta grill some hamburgers and while I'm doing that, she can fry some green tomatoes. We have to be patient. But there's another principle about sewing. When do we reap? We reap later than we sow. Later. We've got to sow the seed first and have faith that that seed is going to produce what we're wanting it to produce. In 2004, we moved to Illinois. I was still working on a master's degree in education at Indiana University. I was gonna let it go because I already had two master's degrees at that time. I didn't have my doctorate there. But I was just gonna let it go. It's just gonna be a third master's degree. And I got a phone call one day from the head of the Department of Education, Dr. Babione at Indiana University, saying, What are you doing? Well I'm preaching in Illinois. She said, I am not that stupid, See, so that's how I found you. She said, What are you doing with your degree? and she literally taught me back into finishing that degree by doing two things. By one, playing with her computer keys while I could hear the clicking and made me an in-state student until I finished, so I didn't have to pay out of state tuition. But secondly, on her computer that day, she lined up the last three courses of my degree and two of those courses at a state secular university, Indiana University, were on Designing and writing the curriculum and implementing an after school program that was a cooperation, a collaboration with the public school. And we started that at Martinton. And we had that after school program all those years in which, when the kids got there, they got a healthy snack first. The second thing was they had to sit down and open their books and do their homework. The parents loved it. Over and over again I had parents say to me, It's the one night a week that I don't have to argue with my kids to get their homework done. Because if they come to, come to that, if they came to that program and said, We don't have homework, I said, okay, but you know that I'm gonna have Miss Garner check on that because one of the school teachers was a member of the church and she was liaison. And they'd say, well, uh, we do have a little something, and they'd get it out. And if they legitimately didn't have homework, they had to get one of the books off the shelves that we had, and they had to sit and read. Once their homework was done, once they were finished reading, we go outside and play until it was time to go home. 2004, 17 years ago. I had people during that first year ask me, what do you think any good's coming out of this program? We're not seeing a lot of those people coming to church. Six months ago, I did the wedding for one of those little kids who still doesn't have a church family. One of those families showed up here at church a while back. I don't know what those seeds will produce. That's not my job. My job was just to be planting those seeds of love and kindness and help and tutoring. But in verse 2, we're once again faced with the realization that we are living under limitations. There are limits of sowing. Because of the fact that we're human, We're limited. We're limited in terms of our resources, in terms of our time, in terms of our abilities. Cindy doesn't know this yet because we haven't sat down and had this talk. But one of the things that I realized during my two weeks was that I have at times been trying to spray myself too thin. And so... We need some of you to step up because I'm not going to be heavily involved in our youth program. Cindy's going to be doing that and I'll be here but, and I'll do what I can to help, but, but there's so many things that I need to spend my time on to be a good steward of the time that God has given me. There are limits to our time, limits to our abilities. We traveled this last two weeks predominantly depending on the GPS system that our car has. We would plug in the address and we would do what it said to do. Until, until Eric and I were going to a place and it said to turn right, and he looked up and I looked up and there were three cars facing us, one in each lane. And the GPS was telling us to turn right onto a one-way street that was coming toward us. But by and large, we followed that guidance system. Did you know that God has given us a spiritual guidance system? A GPS? So we can know what it is that He wants us to do? Gee, gifts. God has given each of you gifts that he hasn't given to me. And he's given me gifts that he hasn't given to you all. What are the gifts that God has given you? G. P. Passions. What are your passions? I love my brother. He's really my brother-in-law, but I love him as a brother. And he has a passion for singing. And fortunately, S, the setting, GPS, the setting he's in, that's okay because those people love to hear him sing. But I'm going to tell you right now, he doesn't have the G. He doesn't have the gift of singing. He has the gift of making a joyful noise into the Lord. And fortunately, the setting he is in, that works out. But each of us need to decide, what gifts has God given to me? What is my passion? Because even if God has gifted me in a certain way and that's not my passion, I'm not going to do well. I took all of that group of testing my senior year of high high school. I was at a college prep school and they required me. And my counselor pulled me in and said, you did top notch in math and science areas. You need to go into some kind of technological scientific field. And I said, okay. I was planning on going into medicine. That's kind of scientific and technological. And I actually enrolled at Wabash College as a pre-med student because they had a high rate of placing their students into med school. But then all of a sudden, I wasn't happy. And I was playing football. I'd already made the varsity traveling squad of the college's football team, but I wasn't happy. So I called my dad, and I said, "You think I can still get into Lincoln? I hadn't applied, and their orientation had already started." He said, "I don't know. I'll give a call." He called. He called me back. That was before you had cell phones. I had to stand by the payphone and wait for the ring. He called me back, and he said, "They said to pack your stuff and come on over if you want." And I did just that. I didn't even go home. I packed my car with all my stuff, and I went from Wabash to Crawfordsville, Indiana. I went from Wabash to Lincoln, and I found out that the gifts that God had given me weren't so much in science and mathematics. Those weren't the gifts He wanted me to use. He wanted me to use the gifts of being a speaker a teacher, a student. But we have limits. In the words of Paul to Christians at Galatia, Paul says we are as we have opportunity. And that's so important. As we have opportunity to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6. Third and lastly, in verses 2 and 3, Solomon emphasizes the urgency of sowing. We're to do good to all that we can, in every way that we can, every time that we we can, because we don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. Those trees might decide to do a deluge, and we've experienced that this year, haven't we? Plenty of rain in this area. A tree might fall, and there it's going to land, unless we do something about it. And just as a storm cloud empties itself upon the earth, causing trees to fall and not rise again, even so, God's judgment is going to come upon all of us at an unknown time. In other words, we need to be urgent in helping those around us, for their life may come to an abrupt end. And we'll have no more opportunity for doing good to them. Let me tell you a story. This is uh, Avery Lewis Bauer, Bub Bauer, and his wife, Bobby. Bub just retired as a facilities manager of White Mills Christian Camp last year. Served faithfully for many, many years, keeping the grounds looking beautiful and overseeing a lot of the aspects of the camp. Man, I would have loved to have had him working alongside me as as manager at any point. Bubba and I rode back and forth to high school together. There were no school buses in Louisville, Kentucky. You got to school however you could, period. All the way through, no, no buses for elementary, junior high, high school. You could get free tokens to ride the city bus if that would help you, but other than that, you got to school on your own. And Bub rode in the car that I rode in with four others. One day, Bub's sister, who was a year ahead of us, said to me, Chauncey, I think Bub would come to our revival meeting we're having at church if you would ask. him. Bub didn't go to church, neither did his dad, but his mom and, daughter, his mom and two sisters were there every week. And so I did that. I asked him. I said, Bub, we're having a revival meeting at church. Would you come and go with me? He said, yeah, I'll do that. And he came. And he listened. He came back the second night. I didn't invite him back. He came back on his own the second night. And the third night. Which was Friday night. And when the invitation was given, Bob went forward, gave his life to Jesus Christ made the decision when he graduated from high school to go to Kentucky Christian College to study for some form of ministry. College wasn't for him. At the end of the year, he went back home to be a bricklayer with his dad, but he didn't quit going to church and worshiping God. And he continued to be involved, and he became a deacon in his church, an elder in his church, and then ended up as the camp and facilities manager at White Mills Christian Service Camp because I planted a seed with an invitation. Now let me tell you about Larry. And I don't have a picture of Larry because I don't even know his last name. We worked together every day at Winn-Dixie's Warehouse loading semis. We had breaks together every day. We had lunch together every day for that summer. And one day, Larry wasn't at work on Monday morning. I said, where's Larry? Stunned white faces. You didn't hear? There was an accident on Barksdale Road out south of Louisville, Kentucky. Four kids in the car. Three of the four were killed. I said, yeah, I heard about the accident. Larry was one of the four that was killed. He's a silhouette on my television because I didn't have the guts. I didn't have the integrity. I didn't have the motivation. I was never willing to say to Larry, how about if you would come to church with me? You have a relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. So, what should we do? See, Solomon points out that we're prone to make excuses. The excuses we make are twofold. First, we make the excuse well, I'm going to do it, but I've got to make sure it's the right time. How many times have you heard young couples say, well, we're going to have a child, but we're going to wait until it's the right time, until the finances are right and jobs are right. Mary, did that right time ever come or was it just a, we better have our family? It doesn't come. The right time often never comes. So we don't do what we're supposed to do. Or the other excuse that gets made. Is well I'm not sure that I'll succeed and we get that fear that fear overcomes our faith not our faith overcoming our fear this last week I don't know how many of you are doing it I'll make you another copy if you want to pick up and get going but this last week a part of our all church reading plan was Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9 And I read these words on the beach. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, because I just had a conversation with a guy down by the edge of the water. And I said, you know... (laughs) I don't know about you, but this whole thing of the tides just totally has me bamboozled. We sat and watched it go from high tide to low tide and rocks appear that we hadn't even seen when we first got there. And how the moon's gravitational pull can have that effect on the oceans is just beyond me. And I took the opportunity and I said, it's things like that that I just cannot believe time and I have to believe there's a Creator God. And He turned and looked at me and He said, God bless you, so do I. Where are we at, church? Where are we at? You know, in the activities that Solomon used for an illustration, a great deal of faith is required because we are living under a significant limitation. We cannot control the circumstances of our life. But what we can control is our attitude in those circumstances. In terms of the farmer, bad weather, blind insects might destroy the crop. And the farmer's labor would be in vain. But if the merchant or the farmer waited until the circumstances were ideal, they'd never get anything done. And we all know, I believe, that life has a certain amount of risk to it. And that's where faith, in terms of loyal trust, comes in. But is it possible that Solomon actually was protesting a bit too much? As we've made our way through Ecclesiastes, we've already seen how he understood the value of wisdom and that it originates in respect for God. He believed that God rules history by governing life and death. He asserts that work, joy, and family are all God's gifts. All these things he readily confesses. But you see, what continues to plague Solomon and what many of us struggle with, whether we know it or not, whether we accept it or not, is the realization that he doesn't know how the inner workings of God's mind nor the specifics of God's timing are set by divine decree. And we expect God to respond according to our timing and respond to our requests. And we've been duped. We have been duped by the name-it-and-claim-it television evangelists. You cannot hold God hostage by your prayers. You cannot make God do anything because you have prayed fervently and righteously. To state it in other words, Solomon is wrestling with our own finitude that is living under limitations. <coughs> but here in the blessing even, even when we do not know God's will and how God will use our work to advance His kingdom, we still need to continue to pray, continue to serve, continue to hope, knowing as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so we can return to the conclusion When we're honest with ourselves and we admit we're living under limitation and we admit that God's ways are mysterious, then we have to get busy. And in the first six verses of Ecclesiastes 11, I think what Solomon is saying to us is live boldly. Don't let the uncertainties of life hold us back. Don't let it hold us back from taking risks. But live by faith for the glory of God. Live believing that faith will overcome fear. You see, the better part of spiritual wisdom is not caution, but courage through Christ to cast our bread upon the waters. To push away and push against all the limitations that are cast our way. Let's pray.